0: Welcome to the Atlanta Council. Uh, I am Steve Grundman. I'm the M.A. and George Lund Fellow for Emerging Defense Challenges in the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security within the Council. Um, We are here today uh, to hear an address and have a conversation with Renan Horowitz, uh, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Elbit Systems of America. Uh, this is uh, actually the second anniversary of the series uh, within which uh, this, this address will be, will be made. It's our Captains of Industry series. It was launched, it occurred to me walking over here today, it was launched two years ago this month uh, by uh, Dave Melcher, did us the honor of breaking the ice on this series when he was the chief executive of Excellus. Um, Dave, as many of you in this room now would know, is the uh, chief executive at the Aerospace Industries Association. Uh, from Dave, uh, I won't recount them all. There have been at least 16 chief executives who have been up on this stage in this series. Among the more recent, it shouldn't be hard for me uh, to recall, are uh, a collection of uh, chief executives we had here in June, including uh, Peter Lengel, uh, uh, John Pranzatelli, uh, from respectively uh, Safran and, and MBDA. Uh, earlier, uh, uh, we, well, Mike Petters uh, was on this stage, Bill Linn of fin Mechanica DRS, uh, and others, Tom Enders, not least of, of, of Airbus, uh, just to mention a few. And um, so Renan is uh, stepping into a, an august body of, uh, uh, of uh, gentlemen and women um, uh, Ellen Lord, I should hasten to mention, Linda Hudson, um, who have been on this stage in this Captains of Industry series, which we're very proud of. Uh, and I think, uh, and I'm quite sure that Renan is going to add another distinguished contribution to the series here. Uh, Today, Um, He's going to do that uh, by making an address entitled, Accelerating Defense Innovation, uh, Lessons from Silicon Wadi. And uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, uh, a conversation uh, that plays out against the backdrop of really one of the signal uh, public policy initiatives, at least as regards the defense industry, uh, that Secretary Carter, Secretary Ashton Carter, um, has launched. In the spring, just a few weeks after he um, had been confirmed as Secretary of Defense, uh, the Secretary went out to Silicon Valley, uh, which unto itself, for a guy who has a pretty busy uh, schedule of managing the world and the largest enterprise in the world, the Defense Department, um, uh, makes a big impact. Uh, went out there and made a call to all of us uh, in industry, in academia, um, uh, in, in, in government and elsewhere to engage one another uh, in a manner that he remembers, uh, Secretary Carter remembers, uh, from the early years of his professional uh life and uh and really uh recalls as part of the inspiration for him getting involved him a physicist by training uh getting involved in national security um renan is here to speak to that call um and in a in a really interesting and and somewhat provocative way uh drawing off the experience of uh his parent company elbit systems uh in in israel um uh, this uh, 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 startup nation, as it has uh, uh, been coined by, uh, by an author. Um, and so this will uh, further further manifest the, the mission of, of this series, which is to give chief executives a prominent platform, I would like to think the most prominent platform in town, Uh, uh, from which to talk about the public interests that their companies serve and the public policies that shape their markets. Well, the the subject of of the address today is right on that point, and I I appreciate Renan coming to do it. Um, One of the things I'm gonna mention uh, is that Renan will take some time at the beginning of his address to talk about Elbit Systems of America and Elbit Systems, I've asked him to do that. Right. The purpose of this address is not for him to per se promote Elbit Systems of America, but I've asked him to do that because while all of us, many of us, probably all of us in this room, you know, know some piece of the elephant of Elbit systems. Um, I think it's an important piece of context to what he's saying for us to all understand uh, from, from uh, his own uh, rendering. Uh, what what the company is and what the company does. Sometimes companies, particularly the smaller companies, even the larger companies, uh, get thought of by the last big contract win that they had. And as important as that may be, uh, there are other things that are going on in these companies that are important uh, context for what we're going to hear the chief executive say. Um. Uh, Before I leave the topic uh, and my pride in the series, I want to make one uh, one promotional announcement of my own, and that is on November 10th, uh, we will have another, but the last in the year, I believe, Uh, in this series. November 10th, we're going to have a panel discussion with chief executives in the space industry or of of companies that are addressing space. The two anchors on that panel who are thus far confirmed, although I surely will have three or four by the time the date runs around, are Rob Strain from Ball Aerospace and Julie Van Cleek, not the chief executive of Aerojet, uh, but a senior vice president at Aerojet and uh, who many of us in the industry know. Uh, The two of them at the least will make for a great conversation, but we'll fill out the panel Uh, as well, November 10th at this same time, I would encourage all of you with an interest in that uh, to come back, please. Um, With that all having been said, let me introduce Renan and then get on to uh, his address um, and and the conversation he and I will have, and then some some, uh, back and forth with those of you in the audience who may have questions. Uh, I would underscore that this event uh, is a public on-the-record event, um, uh, Renan knows that, but uh, uh, the rest of you, if during the Q&A session I call upon you to ask a question, please use the microphone to identify yourself and your affiliation uh, uh, so, that, so that the record is clear. Um, so Renan Horowitz is the president and chief executive officer of Elbit Systems of America. Um, he uh, and and that business is our headquartered in Fort Worth. Um, it is the uh, the American subsidiary of uh, of Elbit Systems, uh, which is uh, I, I my words now not his the national champion defense electronics company of, of Israel, one of the most distinguished defense electronics companies uh, anywhere in the world. Um, other features of his biography you can read in the, the handout that, uh, that I think each of you has available to you. Um, I will point out that the third paragraph of it, several items in it to, uh, that, that uh, underscore an anecdote that I'm about to tell. So, Renan uh, serves on the executive committee of the Board of gov- Governors of the Aerospace Industry Association. He's a member of Business Executives for National Security, he just this month uh, has joined the executive committee or board, maybe it's called, of the National Defense Industrial Association. Our partner, uh, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to mention in another series, the uh, Defense Industrial Policy Series that we run, NDIA, that is to say. Um, he has, uh, uh, and I think it, it, uh, it shows in the way he runs his business and the success of his business, uh, engineering degrees, uh, both mechanical engineering and electrical engineering, as well as an MBA. Uh, all, all of those things would uh, seem to befit uh, the character of him and his company, so no surprise there. Um, uh, I, I like to, uh, uh, when, I, when I have someone introduce uh, the speaker, uh, I, I ask them to draw on some personal anecdote uh, to tell us not just what the person has done, but who they are. Um, and my personal anecdote, since I have that duty today and, and privilege, Uh, My personal anecdote is this. Um, Within the last month, uh, many of us in this room have spent some time at two big trade shows. Uh, The Air Force Association uh, held its big trade show uh, in in September uh, down at the Gaylord, the National Harbor. And uh, uh, just last week, the Association of the United States Army held its trade show here at the Convention Center. I myself spent about three hours at each one of these events. I had a couple meetings. I walked through the, uh, uh, you know, the fabulous uh, uh, um, displays. And um, in those six hours, I saw one CEO, one person I w- recognized as, as a CEO. In a, at, each of, at, at each of the events, I saw one CEO at the FA. I saw one CEO at the AUSA convention, and both of those people were Renan Horowitz. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, there's there's more to that than Renan's taste for coffee. Um, uh, I think it's it's as as he will as he will uh, elaborate in in his address. It's a business strategy to know people, uh, to be known, and 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 to know people. And uh, and uh, I uh, that was manifest in these you know albeit anecdotal observations uh, that I would make. But um, but with that. Uh, by way of introduction, I could not be happier than to have Renan Horowitz here to make this address. Thanks, Renan, very much for coming.
1: Okay. Thank you, Steve, for this uh, kind introduction. And uh, it's very good to, to see some familiar place, uh, faces here and, uh, and, and friends. I'm uh, honored to speak as part of the uh, Atlantic Council Captains of Industry Series. Uh, Looking forward to share some of the experiences and insights uh, regarding this hot topic of leveraging Silicon Valley and defense. Uh, I picked up this uh, biblical story of Noah and the ark because even though thousands of years have passed, I still think it holds lessons uh, which which are still very relevant to the discussion we have today. Um, And I want to spend... uh, uh, a f- few moments on that. Before I start, maybe as, as Steve mentioned, just a few uh, moments on Elbit. Those of you uh, that may not be very familiar with the company, um, I'd just like to describe a little bit. I- I'll start from Elbit Systems of America, which I had uh, founded a little over uh, two decades ago. I uh, actually acquired uh, a facility down in Fort Worth, Texas from General Dynamics right at the time they sold their aircraft division to. Uh, Lockheed Martin, and at the start it was about a $30 million organization, basically a built-to-print shop, one customer, one product line. And I'm very proud to say we're approaching a billion dollars right now. Uh, Approximately 1,800 employees all around the US, multiple sites, Fort Worth, New Hampshire, San Antonio, Talladega, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Virginia. Uh, and basically a US provider of uh, innovative solution for defense, commercial aviation, homeland security, and another sector that not many, not many people are aware of, uh, medical instrumentation market. So a uh, very, very, uh, very, very prolific company. We're operating under a special security agreement with the uh, US uh, Department of Defense. I'm pleased to have John Mormon here, who is uh, heading our uh, government security committee. Uh, and one other interesting factor, uh, very, very proud of being uh, awarded by the Ethisphere Institute the title of basically a world's most ethical company And in 2014 and 2015. And I would highlight that from the air, aerospace and defense industry in the U.S. in 2015, only two companies have been awarded this. This is Albert Systems of America and my good partners from Rockwell Collins. So a, a pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, Achievement, And, of course, we're part of the uh, global family of Elbit Systems uh, which is a multi-domestic aerospace and defense company, global presence, uh, industrial operations in 13 countries. And I'm talking about industrial operations, not about just offices. Uh, in 2015, uh, about $3 billion of revenues, publicly traded, Nasdaq and the Tel Aviv stock exchange, 12,000 employees, and a remarkable thing of that is more than 50% of them are engineers and scientists doing development and research. And as you can see, over 9% of the annual revenues is being invested back into R&D, which is a pretty, into the technology development, which is pretty remarkable for a company that size. Headquartered in Israel, of course, and uh, as you can see from the pie chart over there, the US really constitutes Elbit's largest market. A very significant, very significant market, which we call a home market, basically for us. Uh, just from a business, from a business perspective, these are some of the uh, 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 impressive portfolio of Elbit. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but as you can see uh, significant capabilities, and I'm proud to say uh, a world leader in areas such as advanced cockpits, helmet motor displays. Uh, Aircraft survivability, uh, live virtual constructive training, home, homeland security, and much more. So a very, very significant presence with that. Uh, if you talk about the US, just wanna again highlight our pride in supporting many, many key US weapon systems and platforms. So if I'm starting from the left, from the upper left, of course on the F-35, together with our partners from Rockwell Collins, we're doing the helmet mounted display system for the aircraft. This is what people call a helmet mounted display centric aircraft. You have to use the helmet to fly the aircraft, to uh, do a lot of the missions, uh, very significant. 80% or more of the cockpit on the V-22 is done by us in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, The primary flight displays, the map system, the helmet mounted display system, the uh, central processor. On the uh, Apache helicopter, not just the helmet, but what we call the heart, of the Apache Block 3, the mission processor, everything that's doing the man-on-man, the uh, processing, the fusion, all of that is done by us. On the lower portion, we just completed uh, about a month ago, installation of the first integrated fixed hours installation in Nogales, Arizona. Uh, I had the pleasure of hosting Senator McCain about a week and a half ago there with the agents. He spent about three hours with the system, with the agents, and. Uh, Very pleased to say that what he said is he wants to see the Arizona border equipped with all this done by the end of 2017. So good support from him. A whole host of uh, electro-optical devices for the uh, Marine Corps and the Army. And then last but not least, uh, we had the pleasure of hosting uh, uh, Secretary James and Dr. LaPlante and Fort Worth in August because we are by far the larger producer of uh, semi-active laser seekers on all of the weapons that are being used currently by the US against the FICE and ISIS, uh, Laser JDAM, Griffin, Viper Strike, and so forth. So if she came down. One of the main purposes was to recognize our people for everything we're doing. So tremendous, tremendous pride, in what I like to say like the Intel computers inside, Elbit inside, making US systems better. That's not my quote, that somebody else that said that. But it ain't bad. Huh? It's not, it's good. <laughs> So, uh, just the backdrop for, for my discussion today is really the increased threat that we're seeing to our national security. Whether it's ISIS, Russia, nuclear terrorism, whatever is your choice, uh, perhaps our eroding technical and innovation superiority might in fact be the greatest threat, regardless of the ad- adversary. If, if we are technologically outmanned, how are we going to win the next battle? And that's, that's really what I want to talk about today. Uh, if you really reflect on, uh, on the moment, on today's environment, you can see the problem that we face with that. And uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work recently said our technological superiority is slipping. We see it every day. He also added that different adversaries will use different technologies in ways that surprise us. Battlefield advantages in the future are going to be very short-lived he said, consequently we have to be able to innovate and adopt technologies very quickly. We're facing an, uh, an emerging innovation gap, defense innovation is moving too slow, cycles that we used to take for 18 years are now needing to be measured in, in 18 months or less. So this is a big a big challenge that we're facing. And when you look at what uh, Steve mentioned, uh, du- uh, Dr. Carter and, and the address, DOD is really looking at Silicon Valley to answer the innovation challenge. Uh, As you can see, uh, looking for the commercial sector for solution is not new. Secretary of uh, Defense William Perry said in June 1994, he said, to meet future needs, the Department of Defense must increase access to commercial state-of-the-art technology, even back then. So what's driving that? What's driving the thought around that? Well, it's very simple. If you look in the past, uh, technologies migrated for DoD into commercial market space. We basically see uh, a completely different dynamics today. We see exactly the opposite. Uh, technologies are coming in from commercial into DoD. Commercial R&D in the US represents 80% of the national, national, uh, national total now. Microsoft, Google, Apple invested more than five times the total sum spent by the five largest U.S. defense companies in aerospace and defense uh, on R&D projects in 2014. Global research and development is now more than twice that of the U.S. And while Secretary Carter is looking and I quote what, what he's saying, to find solutions of these kinds of tough questions when our commercial, civil, and government sectors work together as partners, others in our industry view this Uh, the fact that the Pentagon is looking at Silicon Valley as a sore subject and maybe even a threat. So this is what I'm going to talk today about. Uh, Let's consider just the fact that we can effectively partner and leverage Silicon Valley rather than viewing it as a sore subject. Uh, And I'd like to share a few examples from what, uh, what we call Silicon Wadi and how they may translate to Secretary Carter's desire to link Silicon Valley, the defense industry, and the Pentagon. I'll start just a little bit about Israel and tie it back into the innovation, just a little bit. So if you look at key economic metrics that demonstrate that Israel represents one of the greatest concentration of innovation and entrepreneurships in the world today. Yossi uh, Yossi Vardy, who's one of the iconic serial entrepreneurs, in Israel said, and I quote, he said, the social graph is very simple here. Everybody knows everyone. And if you look in Bloomberg's 2015 innovation index, Israel ranks as the world's second most innovative country, just just behind uh, South Korea. This is despite the fact and maybe because of the fact that Israel is small in size, small in population, Basically, mostly an arid land that yields few natural resources and have been under attack uh, from hostile enemies for virtually all of its 67 years of existence. So what are some of the key factors that are driving Israeli technology innovation? They're actually associated with the small size in the culture, proximity and familiarity. Full-time aerospace engineers that are working for Elbit Systems are many times also serving in the Israeli Air Force Reserves. Cybersecurity entrepreneurs that are leading Silicon Valley startups worked in the Israeli government for 20 years. All that is very, very linked together. There's close interaction between developers, operators, and users working together. Sometimes they're actually the same person developing during the week, doing uh, reserve work, and using the systems in a weekend. So they work together, they socialize together, they know each other's family. This serves to increase what I would call the intellectual bandwidth. And of course, when you look at this, this needs to be supported, of course, by robust investments. And in terms of R&D expenditures, a percent of GDP, Israel ranks ahead of the US, Germany, UK, and others from its investment in R&D basically as part of the GDP. When you look at at, uh, an example here, according to Ron Berger, strategy consultant, Israel has the most, the highest per capita venture capital investment and the highest per company tech startup rate. And there are more, actually more technology companies from Israel listed on NASDAQ than from any other company except China and the US. Uh, When you look, for example, at cybersecurity, over 250 innovative cybersecurity companies from Israel. And I'm very proud and pleased to tell you that Elbit's own Cyberbit uh, technology company just received, yesterday was announced, the Frost and Sullivan Award for competitive strategy, innovation, and leadership in cyber intelligence and security uh, markets. So that's a recognition just from yesterday for, for an Elbit company on that. Uh, when you look at this, annual exports of $3 billion, of very broad market penetration. If I look at a different angle at big data, which is a big thing right now, a sig- significant presence there, significant expertise in the technology, in a very, very active uh, m M&A and market in Israel. One of the things that's even more remarkable is when you look at how many multinational corporations have established research and development centers in Israel. And, and you will recognize uh, a lot of the logos over there. It's, it's, the, it's the premier list of leading technology innovators in the world. All of them have R&D technology centers in Israel uh, tapping into the capabilities over there. And, you know, there's much talk about Israeli-US security cooperation, but I want to highlight uh, Israeli-U.S. partnership in innovation and when you look at some of the things that came out of Israel working with U.S. company all the way from the Pentium and Centrino, uh, computer chips, uh, PC board inspection, firewall, text message and my beloved application on my iPhone whenever I'm on travel ways. What what a miracle this thing is. So. This is really uh, a long list of innovations and capabilities that are just remarkable. Uh, Despite the fact that Israel recently newly discovered some gas uh, fields uh, over the Mediterranean coastline, I still find this comment by one of the great investors of this country, uh, humorous but very relevant. And he says, you know, some Americans came looking for oil so they didn't stop in Israel. We came looking for brains, so we did stop in Israel. Now, this is, this is uh, Warren Buffett, uh, a very, very interesting comment from him. <laughs> so the question is, what can we learn from all this to bridge what I call the innovation gap in this country? Uh, I don't want to leave you with the impression that I think innovation just happens abroad or in Israel, because when you look at this country here, uh, it has a long and amazing track record of engineering and creativity. Uh, one of the things that comes to mind when I kind of prepare for this is, is the innovation associated with the additive manufacturing and 3D printing. And you see some, some pictures there. This technology is revolutionizing many fields, aerospace defense to health to everything else. There's some pictures there in a the medical field of protest, uh, prosthetics for limbs and jaws that have made with this technology that are providing life-changing Solutions for our wounded warriors and ordinary citizens: uh, engineered organs, working kidneys, blood vessels, everything uh, in there that, that's really very creative. Uh, this technology started in the U.S. about 30 years ago. Uh, expanded globally, we're now seeing breakthroughs in industries including automotive uh, and A and D. If you look at that uh, neat car over there, this is a car from Local Motors. It's the first. 3D printed car made in Detroit in collaboration with Oak Ridge National Laboratory uh, in Tennessee. It was printed from carbon fiber reinforced plastic in about 40 hours. So pretty remarkable and when you look at UAS's, the world's first unmanned uh, aircraft manufactured 3D printing technology was built in the UK in 2011 in just seven days. So, when I think about uh, American innovation, you can think about DARPA and their national security breakthroughs. You can think about the history of advancing satellite technologies, rocketry, space exploration. Um, If we're looking for someone to either love or hate for the internet, in fact, it is DARPA that gets the credit for inventing the digital protocols that made the internet possible. And you look at U.S. companies such as Apple, Google, and Amazon, completely revolutionized the consumer behavior of this entire nation and and the world in less than a generation. So a lot of innovation and ingenuity here in the US as well. Uh, This country has an amazing track record of understanding the connection between innovation and security Uh, and we, we still build on it. And US innovation, I would say, has contributed amazingly to Israel's security and vice versa. So so I don't want to leave you with the thought that innovation is just done outside of of the world. Still, what I recognize is that there are significant cultural and economic differences between Silicon Valley and what we call the traditional defense industry. And I picked up a few few things, and those are generic, so somebody can argue with them. But one, one industry is primarily sales driven while the other has a much stronger mission and customer orientation. You can look at technical considerations that drive differences between the industries. Uh, data structures, unstructured and structured, open source, information assurance, and many more. And another very important factor is time to market and obsolescence, which is very, very key for the commercial Silicon Valley industry. While uh, we look at the, uh, the A&D industry, a lot of it has to do with lifecycle support, and extremely long uh, logistics trails. So there's a lot of differences, but also there's a lot of common, which we have to remember and exploit. I think both A&D, traditional defense, and Silicon Valley are really focused on innovation, not just for the sake of innovation, but in order to achieve specific and measurable results. And that's a fact that sometimes is lost in the policy debate Around innovation, you need to do things for specific results. So, I'd like to share with you a real-life example from Elbit on how commercial innovation and technology comes together. So, we're talking about a system called the canary, the canary, and it was developed here to address the concern of advanced fighter aircraft pilots' fatalities under high-G conditions as a result of hypoxia or G-lock, and uh, a lot of, lot of publicity around that around F-22, but it's, it's not just limited to F-22. Uh, so you have a, a company in Israel, Lifebeam. It's, it's a startup founded by two Israeli Air Force pilots with support of the Israeli Ministry of Defense, and they develop technology that's primarily focused on sensing and monitoring uh, physiological factors for sports and well-being. You might consider them the Israeli equivalent of the very, very popular Fitbit. If you look uh, on the right side, users who are also helmet-mounted display system engineers at Elbit, identified this potential technology head for solving one of the most disturbing, life-threatening, phenomena's impact Gen 5 fighter aircraft pilots. So they made a match. They broke some of the silos and the barriers and integrated that technology into the Elbit's extensive portfolio of helmet-mounted display systems. And and physiological monitoring the pilot while in flight provides real-time alerts of life-threatening situations. In extreme cases such as hypoxia or loss of consciousness, a warning alerts the pilot, allowing him to react before losing consciousness. And in fact, if, if, if the pilot is unable to operate the aircraft, the canary system facilitates autonomous aircraft and pilot recovery by engaging other systems on the aircraft. So taking this, a commercial innovation with a very strong military product line uh, making the helmet even smarter. So uh, Cannery is just one example and uh, the challenge really is to mechanize a repeatable and productive process to make it happen. And this is what Elbit is doing through something they call Incubit which is an initiative uh, by Elbit with the theme basically of of, uh, Elbit funded incubator is technology risks are our business. And we have to recognize around innovation, risk is a major thing. So what is Incubit? What what are we doing over there? Basically, uh, Incubit and Elbit employees working together, sharing space labs, know-how, technical expertise and more. It invests in entrepreneurs with innovative technology that have both commercial and defense related applications. So, th- this is really the, the venture. This is what uh, we're doing that. And some of the statistics around that to date uh, 700 startups has been explored, about 350 due diligence processes performed on this, and five key investments are underway right now in nanotechnology, cybersecurity, medical devices, and rocket engine technology. What it does is provides entrepreneurs the basic infrastructure so they can focus their efforts on innovating and developing technologies by bringing together startups, entrepreneurs, and Elbit Systems resources and expertise. So this this is one example of of doing that. Uh, Another example is actually taking this and bringing it inside the company itself, inside Elbit. And Enoshare is basically, A place where we harness innovation inside the company through a concept very similar to what we call crowdsourcing today. So Elbit Systems has an internal incubator that's called InnoShare and provides employees a platform to think and create and encourage them to innovate. It's similar to incubate, but again, as I said, instead of external startups and entrepreneurs, it forms an internal system to facilitate technology innovation. The objective here is to enable idea evaluation, an improvement process that involves everyone, not just senior management. It applies to the crowdsourcing model, where groups of people are smarter than an elite few. The ideas are selected for R&D investments by collective crowd wisdom. We call it crowd wisdom, which we believe is superior, again, as I said, to management only interaction. And one other benefit of InnoShares it helps identify high potential employees because the most active in the process are also recognized as the innovative core of the workforce. Some recent statistics, over 400 new ideas in less than a month, with a handful selected for investments through the crowdsourcing process. So very, very successful uh, initiative inside Elbit. Just to share with you some observations and lessons that we learned through this that I think are applicable also to the debate in this country about leveraging Silicon Valley. Uh, As I demonstrated before, uh, our US, our military personnel, national security already benefiting from this kind of innovation. Uh, This collaboration between high-tech investors, defense, and governments, and the fruits which I saw before, the F-35 helmet mounted display system, the integrated fixed tower system on the border, the laser-seekers on the Jada, and many more. Uh, and, and when you look at some of the observations on this, uh, I would say a few things. One is Silicon Valley or Silicon Valley is not replacing the defense industry. It's not a replacement. It. It's not this or that. Uh, it does work effectively with government and defense industry to provide and expand what we call the intellectual bandwidth. It is based on willingness to cooperate and invest between uh, the government, the academia, the investors, the defense industry, and the the startups. Granted, Israel's geography enables a lot of proximity and familiarity, an advantage of course, Uh, and the fact that people developing technologies and products are also users and the same people, it, it facilitates them understanding the problems and challenges intimately. I also recognize U.S. is not Israel. So we, we, we are not able to duplicate Israel's geography and the proximity there. We can't recreate the U.S. as a nation where everybody knows everybody, even though I'm trying, that's not, not getting there yet. We're not going to reinstate the draft, so that's not going to happen. We're not going to have sizable percentage of the industry serve in the military, in the reserves. But despite all these can't and not going to, I do believe there's a lot worthwhile to examine of lessons learned from what the Silicon Wadi has to offer. I'll start from this fear, sorry. Uh, When you close the innovation gap, the issue is about breaking down silos and active matchmaking. We need to establish more intimate mechanism for dialogue and for interaction between the DOD Silicon Valley and the industry. And what I believe is Silicon Valley is a component of the solution. It's not a panacea. It's not going to solve everything. When you look at initiatives like DIUX, it's a good start, but is it enough? I don't know. They opened for business in August and I'm looking forward to see outcome for this collective collective effort. I don't think we should forget that there are the DOD organizations such as DARPA that also play a key role in facilitating dialogue and interaction with Silicon Valley. Questions: are there better opportunity to integrate with DOD third offset strategy, such as the long range R&D program plan, the LRRDP? The challenge is crossing the expense to establish proximity and relationship. That's the biggest challenge that we have. in order to effectively leverage Silicon Valley it requires broadening what we call the intellectual bandwidth. It's a long-term initiative. It's not a quick fix. And the question is, is it easier to bring the defense industry to Silicon Valley or is it easier to bring Silicon Valley to the defense industry? Can we leverage personnel exchange? Can we leverage sabbaticals? How do we create more exposure of Silicon Valley to the problems and the challenges that we face. If, if we can create that, such intimacy, I believe, will be result in greater understanding of the mission, the needs, of the problems. I also think that we should accept the fact that there's a cost associated with innovation. It's not for free. And costs have to be shared by DOD, by the industry, and Silicon Valley. And I think that Washington needs sometimes a reminder that profit is actually a vital component of our nation's defense. Incubate, which I talked about before, is funded by Elbit Systems. And if Elbit Systems doesn't make a profit, there is no Incubate. It, it it works together. I think that industry in Silicon Valley should work closer and collaborate to influence DoD policy making. And such collaboration will help Silicon Valley better understand the challenges facing the defense and national security at the same time also opened the doors for the Valley to exert its substantial influence in Washington and policymakers uh, on DOD policy. For Israel and for Israelis, uh, the security threat is very real. Uh, Nationalism, sense of urgency uh, exists in Silicon Valley because the battlefield comes to the city streets, as, as you can see in the news these days. The threat to the U.S. is just as real, but not as well understood. Maybe, and thankfully, because it's not playing in our streets. So we may not be able to duplicate what Israel has from a geography and proximity or the same sense of urgency, but I do think that in the US, governments, industry, and academia, and Silicon Valley can work together to better adopt commercial technologies and reverse the eroding technological advantage and accelerate innovation to the battlefield. And what we've seen in Silicon Valley is that it works. It provides a platform for innovation. It increases the intellectual bandwidth. Intellectual bandwidth also brings more minds and perspective to the challenge, which I think is the core issue of what we want to try and achieve. It will move move us in a direction where we need to go towards a more descriptive approach instead of what we're used to in our industry sometimes to a prescriptive solution which are mostly obsolete by the time they are deployed. So rather than the government prescribing solutions, this increased intellectual bandwidth will foster an environment where problems are described and more minds are unleashed to discover solutions. Intellectual bandwidth, applying the wisdom of the crowds, as I mentioned before, can uncover new uses for existing and emerging commercial technologies intellectual bandwidth also id collaboration can also find a way to accelerate how these technologies end up applying to the battlefield so i'll end with with the fact that the question is silicon valley really our promised land i don't believe any place holds all the answers i do however believe silicon valley does hold promise for our national security for the defense industry thank you very much Okay, you take you. that seat there.
0: Uh, thank you very much, Renan. That was terrific. Uh, I, I hope it takes nothing away from a speech I haven't heard to say that that was the most comprehensive and, and I think an insightful response from the defense industry that I've heard to Secretary Carter's call. Thank, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really pleased to have you here for this discussion. It um, fortunately uh, raises a number of questions in my mind. Um, uh, and, and uh, probably to uh, questions uh, in the minds of those in the audience as well. And so we'll have a little conversation here, and then um, uh, in 15 minutes thereabouts I'll, I'll open the, the uh, our conversation to questions from those of you here in the audience, as I, as I said. Um, so I'm, I'm taken with the um, with this, uh, slogan, maybe, maybe it's more than just a slogan that is affixed to incubate, um, uh, uh, technology, if I got it right, technology risk is our business, mm-hmm. um, because it strikes me that uh, uh, among the, it's hard, it's hard to claim it as the biggest because there are a lot, but among the barriers to this engagement, this engagement of the commercial, uh, what's called technology uh, industry with the defense industry and with government, um, is the uh, attitudes, systems even, toward risk. Um, and I, I wonder if I could uh, draw you out a little bit on how, uh, whether, whether that's right, whether whether there is a conflict in really the way these two worlds think about risk and what you've been able to do in, in uh, perhaps in InnoShare or in your own uh, engagements with Incubit to bridge that, that uh, mindset
1: about risk. Well, th- that really has to do with the discussion of, of moving more for a descriptive environment rather than a prescriptive mm-hmm. environment in which you really are looking at problem and issues that haven't really been even defined by the user or the government or the establishment and looking for solution, which is really how Silicon Valley works. I mm-hmm. mean, nobody is giving them a spec. nobody's telling them solve a specific problem. They're basically looking in the world and identifying what they think are needs, setting actually sometime uh, trends, cultural, and other type of trends. And we're trying to really replicate the same environment in which you have people coming together, innovating the problems, thinking about the mission, taking the risk, Albert putting some money into it, people risking from the fact that they're leaving uh, maybe maybe well-paid jobs and, and doing a startup to really try to innovate and come up with new ideas and new solutions. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a very, very key core of everything to do with innovation, which we need to really learn from and look at how we apply in the, in the US defense industry here.
0: Is there, um, is there anything, um, well, another of the parts of, uh, let me introduce my question this way, another of the parts of your presentation that strikes me is the, the rate uh, as a percent of sales of uh, IRAD. Uh, Nine percent that is by a factor of about four higher than than the typical um, large uh, US uh, defense company Is there something about the way you're capitalized or uh, the way you structure costs that enables you to pull? uh, Or requires I suppose (laughs) you to pull that much money out of uh, out of earnings
1: uh, and reinvest it I I think it's it's a necessity because uh, as a company like Elbit who's competing globally Mm-hmm. with a lot of other giants in the world, uh, especially companies like Elbit, who are a tier two providers that have to recompete and compete sometimes on an annual basis. Uh, you have to keep your technology and your solution fresh and innovative. Uh, so it, it, it's a must for survival. Now, part of what you accept with that is that there is also um, a certain rate of failure. Some of the investments you make Don't pan out. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to do it. Some of the investments you make pan out only after many, many years. But competing in today's global environment, finding a way to differentiate. And the differentiation uh, differentiation is a lot of times by coming up with an out-of-box solution, (coughs) a different way to address a need. Because you can't just compete just based on cost or based on one factor. You have to come with something different. That requires that R&D investment, which Elbit is making. Um, one of the critiques that uh,
0: has been lobbed back at the Defense Department to the Secretary's uh, call. I'll, I'll keep referring to it. Is that uh, Silicon Valley, there's nothing in it for them, um, as it were. That, that, that uh, uh, the Pentagon, uh, so goes the critique, um, doesn't pay enough in profit, doesn't reward enough in... Uh, risk management, um, and is not working on problems that, that they think they can get rich. Uh, and consequently, um, the response from Silicon Valley, regardless of what the defense industry may or may not do, will be, uh, will be sort of a, a dud. Um, that's, there's at least uh, indications in your presentation that ain't so true. And I wonder if, if you have a sense for, uh, you're not on that side of the, of the conversation, but if you have a sense for what is the incentive or how do you induce the engagement and the energy of, uh, of these entrepreneurs in problems of national security?
1: Well, you know, I made, I made the point that Israel has an advantage from the fact that the proximity the fact that many times the developers or the startups are also the users. So there's no doubt it's very hard to duplicate that kind of sense of national urgency and pride. But I do think that uh, there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley that have very similar national feelings and they care about this country. And I think that the trick and the way is to expose them in a much more open way to the challenges and the issues. I don't think they'll respond well if we prescribe to them what they need to solve. I think they will absolutely uh, play well and, and be in, in, enticed to participate if we find a way to involve them in some of the issues and the problems. I also, Steve, want to make sure that, that I, I focus on one thing that I mentioned before. I don't think it's a panacea. I think there's a lot of focus in the, in the defense industry on is the Googles of the world, the Amazon, the SpaceX's, are going to replace the defense industry. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's our experience. Our experience is not about replacing an industry. Our experience is about leveraging innovation, integrating it into what the defense and AMD industry is able to provide as customized defense solutions. I think the trick is this matchmaking. And I think if we can open up, make it less prescriptive, I think we will see a very positive flow of ideas, investments, and resources that can help us regain our technological advantage.
0: Yeah. Now, I'll, just, I'll just add, I think that's exactly right, and indeed I think a, a careful reading of uh, what Secretary Carter and, and Deputy Secretary Work and, and others have said. Would uh, suggest to me that they're really trying to get access to some of that, uh, you know, that the the billions that the commercial industry is investing in an era of austerity in government spending. Uh, it's part of it as a financial, almost uh, fiscal, if you will, or a response. Uh, to the fiscal situation we're in that motivates uh, them to try to draw them in, but I I would agree not to replace our defense industry by any means.
1: Which which also, Steve, is is again just the point I highlighted there, is also we need to be careful and not be naive that suddenly Silicon Valley is going to replace the investment that DOD needs to make in its budget. I think again it's a complementary, it's not that or that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So uh, the next uh, note I'd written down is to ask you to talk a little more about the hard part. Um, and, it, and it feels to me, and I've alluded to the cultural difference with respect to risk, but maybe more operationally, what's, what's, what's the hard part of, 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 of bridging that, that divide? Uh, organizationally or almost practically, um, what would you say are the, the hard uh, pieces of this that uh, as hard things tend to do, require leadership to intervene and unlock?
1: I think one of the core issues is, is what Elbit, like any other company, faces, which is the non-invented here syndrome. Hmm. A lot of silos and barriers, uh, not really willing to open up to, to new ideas. I think that, that's, a, that's something we've tried to overcome through uh, initiatives like Incubate. Mm-hmm. I also think that um, there's a lot of power inside the defense industry, inside the USA and D industry, by uh, applying concepts like the InnoShare, hmm. opening up to innovation within the companies. There's been a lot of discussion you know, about, about whether the defense uh, industry in the US is innovative. I believe it is. It's extremely innovative. The question is, how do we harness, not just outside, but inside? these companies, more creativity, again, in a more descriptive, rather prescriptive way. And I think there's a whole lot more that can be learned from that than done. I mean, Albert, uh experience with the InnoShare was amazing. The amount of enthusiasm and ideas, and again, the crowdsourcing mm-hmm. application of letting people vet ideas rather than boards or senior management. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I know that's another of these fundamentally different mindsets. Um, of a, I think it's been called uh, open innovation as a, as a both a mindset but also as a practical matter uh, as opposed to uh, the behind-the-green-door sort of tradition that, that our industry tends to pride itself on is going to have to be overcome uh, in order for this, uh, this to come to pass. All right. I will, uh, uh, if I find it, ask one other question, and then I will take uh, questions from the audience. Um, does innovation pay?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you can see at some of these systems that we have uh, over there. Um, I think I mentioned to you before on the uh, home-mounted display system for the F-35, we ended up being recompeted three times, mm-hmm. and each of those times we ended up with innovations and capabilities that absolutely pays. Not just pays; it's a must. I mean, in this day and age, in order to make sure you have a long-term business prospect and you're not becoming obsolete, you have to innovate in commercial industries, but also in aerospace and defense.
0: Okay. Um, are there questions here in the audience uh, that uh, one would like to pose us uh, right there? I'll take that question and then and then this question will be next. Please stand up, identify yourself. Sandra.
2: Thank you. Um, thank you, Mr. Horowitz. Sandra Irwin with National Defense Magazine. Can you talk a little bit about the issue of intellectual property? A lot of the startups will tell me and others, that they don't want to give their ideas to the DOD official who will share it with other defense contractors, and the next thing know, they know, somebody else is producing their idea and making money off their ideas. So there's a lot of paranoia about sharing ideas. Um, so how do you get around that problem? Thank you. Well,
1: first of all, I, I, I think we're, we're facing some of the same issues. Um, and especially, uh, I don't know how you described in the beginning, you mentioned Elbit as the as a leading, you you used the more flowery words to describe Elbit in Israel. One
0: of the world's great defense electronics companies.
1: So so that's uh, definitely when a startup knows that they they are creating a commercial relationship with a company like Elbit, that's definitely a concern. Would Elbit take over the IP and so forth? I think that part of it is putting together initiatives like the incubate, in which you start that relationship and you build the trust from the beginning. So, so I think it's harder to do it when you go in after the fact, when a startup already has the IP and, and, and all that to, to link that relationship. Then, then there's a lot of concern about commerciality. But part of it, if you start from the beginning, if you come in at the start, you provide the support, you facilitate some of the development, and you put together the right commercial agreements that allow the startups, in many cases, to take the IP and develop the commercial application while a company like Elbit or a company here in the US leverages this into a defense application, we found that that can be overcome. It is definitely a challenge, uh, but uh, the the onus is primarily on the defense company to make sure they find a way to reduce the anxiety and create trust with the startups and to ensure that they can continue to develop what they want to develop, which most of the time, again, is in a commercial Arena, rather than in the defense, which they are actually many times not so interested in. Uh, Sandra is pulling on another of the reflex
0: uh, critiques that was made to this initiative, and that is that uh, uh, relative to the government, not not just relative to a defense industry partner, that there will be uh, that, that that there will be a re- re- reluctance to the point of resistance. Uh, of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs engaging in the government because of the idea, and to some degree maybe reality, which is what I'd like you to, to distinguish, uh, that the government is grabby with respect to intellectual property. Is there a public policy uh, point here um, uh, with respect to that?
1: I, I, think, I think that's where, again, in my view, the big potential is the collaboration between the traditional defense industry that that knows how to work with DoD, Mm -hmm. albeit there's some issues and stuff, but knows how to work with DoD, and the commercial companies. And uh, in many of the systems we produce today, there are commercial components. Mm -hmm. We're using commercial software. We're using commercial software from from, uh, Microsoft. We're using many other products. So I, I actually think this is an advantage of the defense industry to be able to facilitate the dialogue between Silicon Valley and DOD and provide that buffer and the protection I was just that to Valley it, is, is looking for. what you for mean, is yep. be a buffer to, so. to these, these intellectual property uh, rules? I think the buffer for intellectual property rules, the buffer around auditing and contracting rules, that buffer, as long as we can create this collaboration, nothing can work. There's a question here, and then I will take a question in the second row from
0: the
2: back. Thank you for appearing today. I'm Hartman Young with Perkins Coie, which is a law firm in town. I was wondering if you could offer some perspective about the regulatory environment, maybe compare the Israeli regulatory environment with what you find here in the United States. I work with a lot of defense contractors, and there's often complaints about new regulations, new executive orders that drive up the cost of business, at least there's a lot of complaints that these types of regulations drive up the cost of business and might actually serve as a deterrent for smaller companies of jumping into the defense space. And I don't know if you see that as a problem domestically and if you could offer
1: some perspective on how that works out in Israel. Um, I, I I think the reality is that as Israel's industry in developing, policies developing, you're seeing uh, a greater migration in Israel also towards more regulation, more control. A lot of time, by the way, is due to pressures by the US administration on Israel to really adopt more of this regulation. Export control is a a, a prime example. But there are other examples as well. So I don't think the regulatory environment is that different. The, The advantage in Israel is, again, this proximity and familiarity. So you can overcome a lot of the bureaucracy by relationship, by knowing people. And I think that's something that's harder here to, to apply. And I think that's why in organization like the Aerospace Industry Association, we have a robust dialogue with DOD and policymakers on trying to simplify some of our regulatory burden and to allow things like this. And I do think that that is one of the things, as Secretary Carter and DOD is looking to create this collaboration with Silicon Valley, that needs to be addressed. It needs to be made simpler. It needs to be made less bureaucratic. It needs to be made less prescriptive and more descriptive. I do think there's a lot of challenges that we need to do. So it's not the, the environment is not much different. It's just that the ability to solve issues and see each other and know each other it's just easier in a smaller country like Israel.
0: There, there's no particular um, public policy that the government of, in, of Israel or the Ministry of Defense has promulgated to promote this. There, there, is,
1: there, there, is, there is more. Uh, 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 yes, there is. There is more initiative by the Israeli Ministry of Defense, by the Israeli government, to encourage development and innovation. And we in this country here are looking more at a free market, and that people mm-hmm. are, so there's less, less of that government intervention or government initiative. That definitely, as I, saw, uh, as I showed in uh, Incubit, it's not just Elbit. The government is involved in that. The IMOD is involved in that. Sometimes they're providing seed money. So there's definitely more of it. And I think that that's what uh, there's some attempts here to do with DARPA and so forth. I, I don't know if the intent with DIUX is to provide any kind of a seed funding. Uh, that might be an interesting idea to to explore because I think that definitely helps in Israel when the government and the IMOD are playing a more active role in and basically seeding investments in interesting areas. Actually
0: I know we have questions here but I want to I want to drill on this for a second. Um, seed money, uh, let's call it investment capital, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so so in in America, that is something which politically, culturally, we have a hard time doing because that's called industrial policy. And as a matter of political culture, we don't do industrial policy. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that. I I, I think it would be fair to say it, uh, the Israeli government does do industrial policy, and, uh, with no, and with no
1: shame about it. Are you asking me if we should? Uh, I'm asking think, you to I think talk we, about I whether think Israel we has
0: an industrial policy that has facilitated the ability of its defense industry uh, to engage
1: uh, with it, uh, entrepreneurs. Absolutely, and I do think that that's one of the areas that we need to really look in this country, in the U.S., whether we need to have a more proactive industrial policy. And I think that the focus, my advice to policymakers, will be that the focus needs to be on the smaller and mid-sized companies. There's a big a lot of focus on the big primes from an industrial policy perspective. There's not a lot of focus on where I believe a lot of the innovation happens, which mm-hmm. is at the smaller and mid-sized companies and I do think there's a lot of room for thought on an industrial policy that provides and encourages these kind of investments at that uh, layer of the supply chain, right? And and government making in
0: putting risk capital yes. uh, into companies is something that the Israeli government does Absolutely. alongside the likes of your company Absolutely. and the entrepreneurs and the venture capital community.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: the question there in the second row from the back, please. Yeah.
3: Scott Van Buskirk,
1: International. I want to get at this point you were just talking about, my question was related to that, was whether there was prime examples from Silicon Wadi of where the defense industry had invested in uh, this uh, area of innovation, and I think you started to get to that point, and uh, and I think you made the point about proximity, being in proximity and being in the same time zone and being in the same location certainly helps. So, were there thoughts of of what could be done uh, to facilitate that that you might have uh, for on this side of the uh, of the Atlantic, perhaps? Uh, I I, th- I think uh, again the the question is whether, and I mentioned this right now. The focus is on uh, defense industry going to Silicon Valley, and 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 being there to try and identify potential solutions. The question is, can we create something that's more collaborative, in which we have potentially maybe exchange of of uh, technologies and engineers. We create a, a forum in which the dialogue is more collaborative rather than I'm going to Silicon Valley to do some shopping for commercial technology. That is, in our experience, is not going to work. The the advantage in Israel, not just the proximity, but the ability in the incubate initiative to put together people, to let them do some brainstorming, to not necessarily put together for them the solutions, but have them, that's where a lot of the innovation and the ideas coming together. And I think the challenge is how to do that. I'm not sure this is gonna be done with a DIUX with with three or four or five people and staff. It needs to be a much more robust discussion, as I call the intellectual barrier. Um, I think that's a challenge. I think that's what we need to think about how to do. All right, there's a question here in the second row, and then I'm gonna
0: turn here. Hi, uh, Joe Schneider, JSA Partners. Uh, um, Vernon, Silicon Valley or American Innovation has, has really, create a whole new industries like uh, Amazon or Apple, et cetera. Uh, Historically, DOD investment has really facilitated a lot of new new industries like the internet. Uh, Do you see any commercial capability that is going to not just add a little bit of incremental capability to DOD products, but could be transformational and move the needle in terms of the defense industry, something from, from the commercial sector to impact defense? Uh, not just uh, incremental.
1: Yeah, I, I understand. Not just incremental. Uh, Joe, I, 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 I wouldn't want to overrule that, but I'm not sure that is really where we're going to see the advantages. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, Amazon and, for example, their intended use of uh, UAS as to deliver packages. So the question is, what is that going to do? Is that going to take over companies in the US that are doing UASs or will investment from Amazon and looking for new capabilities will put a lot of investment and innovation into see and avoid, into elements that are really going to benefit our UAS industry from autonomous capability and so forth. I personally see that more as the advantage. Not necessarily a wholesale replacement or a complete change in a direction, but more harnessing some of these commercial applications, harnessing some of these out-of-the-box thoughts into actually facilitating innovation and creativity into our A&D industry. That's my opinion. But I wouldn't overrule something comes up to completely replace uh, and come up with a whole new solution for a problem we're facing right now. I, I w-
0: hardly would disagree uh, with, with 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 that. I, I I feel compelled to point out, though, um, in my engagement with entrepreneurs, uh, one of the things that I think uh, the, the again the reflexive resistance to this call overlooks is that yes, Silicon Valley, as a general as a generalization, is motivated to get rich. But if you look at them, you also notice many of them are motivated to change the world, mm-hmm. um, and you can certainly imagine yeah. uh, some entrepreneur out there. Who wants to get rich, uh, but whose underlying motivation also is to change the world? Attacking a problem that turns out to be uh, something of high value to national security, either deliberately or by, by cons- you know, by uh, as, a, as a sort of adjacent uh, purpose. Anyway, um, question here.
3: Hi, Michael Bruno with Aviation Week and Space Technology. Uh, our defense industry here has become much more Wall Street oriented over the past couple of decades. And if I'm not mistaken, the Israeli government is kind of trying to step back also from the state sponsorship there. Can you discuss how that affects the drive toward innovation? Does it make it more challenging? Does it actually make it easier?
1: The, the, the focus, the need to satisfy short-term investments is definitely something that each company, including Elbit, is, is, has to cope with. Um, so, so I think I, I don't think it, it it necessarily helps or hurts. It's just a reality of doing business. Uh, I, I would say that the more important factor for a company like Elbit is again the need to stay competitive, to stay up in the technology, to make sure that you are uh, staying ahead of the competition, and you can provide your customers with these kind of solutions. I think I think that. As part of doing business, having to have quarterly earnings and having to have results, it's just something you have to do. It doesn't doesn't change the dynamics of the fact that you have to innovate in order to stay in business. So um, that's that's what Elbit faces. Maybe a company like Elbit faces is even more than some of the larger companies that may have uh, programs with tails of 40, 50, 60 years. We just face the need to be competitive all the time. Um, I think it's just what we have to do. Okay, I think there is a question right here. And raise your hand if
0: uh, we're right down to five minutes, so if you have a question, I want to, okay, and we'll take the last question from that gentleman there after Vaga Maradian. Introduce yourself, please.
2: Vaga Maradian <laughs> from Defense News. Thanks very much, Steve. Uh, first, before my question, Um, The United States government does have industrial policy, it just likes to make believe that it doesn't actually have one because every single one of the decisions it makes has catastrophic implications that sometimes have not been fully thought through. But I digress. The question, Renan, I wanted to ask you uh, was one of the things that uh, there there are a lot of companies that are investing huge amounts of money in new technology, right? Textron did the Scorpion program. Um, Companies every day are coming up with stuff, taking it to DoD. DoD. which is Silicon Valley's problem, goes, wow, what a brilliant idea. Now we're going to go back to square one and we're going to compete it. And now everybody's like, okay, wait a minute. You know, I don't get a reward for the better mousetrap. In Israel, you get rewarded for a better mousetrap. If you were going to give advice to Ash Carter and Frank Kendall, not that you haven't already, but what would it be in terms of how do you structure the policies that get you to the point where you actually get rewarded for having an innovative idea as opposed to necessarily as a smaller company be punished when you've got to go up against the likes of Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, et cetera.
1: I, I, think, I think, Vago, that, that uh, there is the key in here, I think, is to open up, actually. I actually believe that opening up areas for competition is actually a positive side on that. And, and I, I take your example. I think that the opportunity for a company like Elbit or Textron or anybody is to influence the thought process of the decision making of the decision makers as we make these kind of investments and demonstrate to the decision makers that there is a different way to solve the problem. Uh, I, I think in the end, we and many other companies will benefit more from competition. I, I frankly will tell you I am more concerned about situation in which competition ends up to be closed to a small set of companies because they made some investments over the year, and then we lose the ability to leverage new ideas and new innovation. I think a competitive market space that is thriving, in which companies make investments, in which companies try to be ahead, which they know that in order to survive, they need to continually innovate, not just one time, not just over one platform, but across a whole domain, I think is the healthier way for us to maintain our, technological superiority you, you have alluded to uh, having had to compete three
0: times uh, for the helmet mounted display on the f35 do you uh, wish it hadn't been so hard or is that the or are you saying yep yeah, that's the way it goes that's a healthy I, system
1: I wish it wouldn't be that hard but okay. I, w- I will but tell the you, industry as a I whole, will tell you the result of it which is key the result of it is a better helmet monitor okay. display system for the us uh, pilots, okay, for the U.S. military, but well, that's the result of it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, whether I enjoy it and <laughs> like it, no, Got it. whether I want <laughs> another competition, no. But uh, it's a reality of doing business, and in the end, it makes the system better. Check. Question there, and then we're going to wrap up.
3: I appreciate your uh, comments today, sir, they're very good. I, uh, Frank Prouch, Velocity Tech Partners. Uh, we love to make things in this world, but in some cases, the best innovations don't involve making things. They involve repurposing things that already exist. They involve looking at the convergence of technologies that are out there. How do you deal with this? And I think Elbit has cracked the nut on this. And you, you, in fact, showcased an example of the helmet display and the Fitbit convergence. Uh, where you took a baseline system and introduced another feature, which to me that is innovation. Much of the topics that I hear from Silicon Valley are invention, they are not innovation. How do you address the ability to be able to reconcile and come up with good use cases and the ideation of these kinds of things as opposed to drifting back to spinning a new circuit board?
1: Again, as as I mentioned before, the, the big challenge is how to break down some of those barriers. Uh, how to open up. I, I think that, that the only way to do it, and that's what Elbi does, is to open that dialogue. Again, Israel has some advantages, geographical advantages. We need to think in this country how to open up the dialogue and how to incentivize the defense industry to look for different elements in which they can leverage in employing the systems. I think the example that we did with the cannery system is great, but I think there's no In fact, there's a lot of examples in this country in which defense companies went to Silicon Valley and leveraged capabilities. Um, You look at software, you look at hardware, you look at repurposing of a whole lot of things. I think there's a lot of good examples in this country. And I think we just need to find a mechanism to open up that dialogue and to make sure it's not viewed as a threat. It's not viewed as either or. It's viewed as a collaborative effort to make this country better.
0: Uh, that was a great question on which to uh, draw this uh, uh, latest iteration of the Captains of Industry series to a close. Uh, I will first, but not last, thank all of you for coming, those of you who are uh, watching over the Internet and may uh, watch the rebroadcast of this that will be available on the Atlanta Council website in perpetuity. Um, but most of all, I want to thank Renan Horowitz. Um, I am, at, at, at the risk of redundancy, going to return to this everybody-knows-everybody everybody point. Uh, and 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 it, you know the irony of an of an industry which is which uh, to which the term virtual is often affixed, um, actually at its most innovative core. Um, is about people-to-people relationships. Uh, the irony of that and the application of that to the challenge that, uh, uh, that Renan has described uh, uh, presents itself to the defense industry is, at least for me, the most interesting and, and maybe even actionable, if you will, um, insight that I, that I draw both from his address and also from the way he runs his company and uh, conducts himself in the business world. Thank you very, very much, Renan, for Thanks, coming. Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you.